Hello, my name is Steve D'Agostino, and my co-host Anne Fernald and I welcome you to the Twice Over podcast, because to teach is to learn twice over. In this episode, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, Anne and Steve are joined by Kendra Dunbar, Assistant Director for Equity and Inclusion at Fordham University, who shares her thoughts about trauma and being supportive and engaged members of our university and classroom communities. So Kendra, welcome. It's great to have you here. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So I am the Assistant Director for Equity and Inclusion here at Fordham. I work in the Office of the Chief Diversity Officer. It's my job to accompany the university on its journey to become more diverse, more equitable, and more inclusive. Part of my responsibilities are to provoke and sustain conversations throughout the community. Um, to increase public dialogue on issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, and also to cultivate relationships between entities that perhaps work alongside each other, but don't work with each other as often, and creating some training spaces where faculty and staff together are looking at microaggressions and how we experience them and how we may be um, perpetuating them. But to get us out of our natural working enclaves into conversation and in engagement with other people who are also part of this Fordham University community. And in that, I, it encompasses the staff, the students, the faculty, the alumni, families of students, as well as our local communities, all of the local communities that surround both campuses, the larger New York City and New York State community, and how we're developing and cultivating relationships amongst all those entities. Why is it that you see yourself as someone who's doing this, this accompaniment? Well, because I think a lot of diversity and equity work, it's really an invitation into to people to get to know themselves better, to get to know their communities better, to get to know the people in their communities better, to better understand people's stories and the different entry points that we all take. So in saying accompany, accompany, in a lot of ways, I'm recognizing the expertise that we all carry because we all know our stories. We've all shared our stories to different extents. We've all thought about our stories in different ways. But a lot of my work is getting us to think about our stories in, and how they relate to one another wow. and what our positions are in society, in an institution, in a community, how they impact and affect each other, and maybe look at, maybe help the community realize that we're impacting and affecting each other when we don't even realize it, right? So I really do see it as, yes, I have expertise, and yes, I take moments where I am leading an activity or leading a conversation, but really, this is an enterprise that we're all in together. And if we really want a more equitable institution, I think it's really important to to see each other through a lens of mutuality, that we all have expertise, that we all have different talents and gifts to share with each other. And it's when we can level the playing field and see each other's humanity and see each other's dignity that we get closer to being more equitable and more inclusive mm -hmm. and that we open the doors to broader types of diversity than we can even imagine. So to me, it's really about working alongside mm -hmm. and partnering with people and entities throughout the, throughout the Fordham Big C community. A lot of the work I know that you've done in the past has been with student groups 
who uh and can you talk a little bit about what that work has looked like and maybe talk about lavender graduation or uh the black graduation that you did and other events like that that you've helped the students to plan a lot of the work began with just attending some student meetings um and just having a presence and showing that that i'm here that i care that i'm available and I've also collaborated quite a bit with uh, um, OMA, the Office of Multicultural Affairs, and learning more about the work that they're doing with student organizations and how I can augment and kind of help build mm -hmm. that work. So it was actually in some of the partnership with OMA uh, that Asili had reached out. There were some members from Asili in coordination with um, some faculty who had the idea of having a black graduation. Um, and it was similar with the lavender graduation. There were students that were in conversation with faculty about having a lavender graduation. And they reached out to our office and Juan Carlos and OMA and myself met with the student groups to find out what they were planning, to see what was happening. The students had gotten fairly far in the organizing of the Lavender graduation, um, and they just needed some administrative support and, and some financial support. So we found the ways that our office could best support the, the cultivation of the Lavender graduation and also, and also share their goals for having a Lavender graduation with colleagues, with other administrators. Now, the Black gra graduation was still in the process of being developed. And so I took a little bit more of a hands-on approach in terms of meeting with the students and faculty. And they really, they developed the ceremony that they wanted to have. I, I did have a hand, some hands-on uh, role in the actual ceremony for the Black graduation. But mostly it was being a listening ear, being responsive to the students' desire. Um, listening to where that came from and how this could be important, and then finding the institutional space to to make that happen. Can you say a little bit more about the importance of having a special ceremony for graduation that recognizes whether it's members of the LGBTQ plus community or our African American students? There's a graduation that's for everyone, and Often at Fordham, I've heard skeptics say, well, you know, graduation's for everyone. Why should there be a special extra ceremony for this group of people who comprise a minority of their community? So when we think about diversity, equity, and inclusion, why is part of that work essentially also offering a separate space for uh, underrepresented students to gather on their own. What's the value of that kind of space in this work? So I think some of the value is in recognizing and in building institutional recognition of the individuality of the stories, particularly of underrepresented groups. So for Black students to be able to cultivate, craft, and create a celebration that both marks, they will participate in a graduation that marks their academic achievements. Right. But then some, but, but what, but what can get lost in that ceremony is 
the parallel experience of of thriving in an institution where you don't see yourself represented very often. And so creating a space where students are able to represent themselves and tell their story of success and thriving to mark their own cultural heritage in the in the process of that right. to be for those students to commemorate where they've come from and whose shoulders they stand on um, is an incredibly important part of commemorating this passage from one part of their life into another part of their life. And so, yes, all of the students will participate in this academic ceremony, but then there's also these other cultural celebrations that are really important um, for students. And as uh, we had conversations with a number of other student groups, the AP API student groups, um, Latinx student groups, Caribbean student groups. It was a similar desire over, that kept on getting shared, which was my culture was every, was every was a part of every experience I had at Fordham. I need to be able to celebrate it. I need my family to be able to celebrate it. I need to be seen and I would love the institution to see me that way um, and to celebrate me that way. And so it's really having that space to be their full selves and in that leading up to graduation to be able to celebrate what they've done, um, where they've come from, where they're returning to, and then celebrate their academic achievements and celebrate their, their passage through the Fordham curriculum. Um, that's right. So it's part. It's 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 a recognition that this is part of who they are, um, and that the institution understands and supports that. So I'm wondering if you want to just share with us a little bit of how you came to be in higher ed, because that's not where you've spent your career, and maybe some storytelling mm -hmm. around what you've learned and what you bring from your past here. My very first job, I was running a seminar program on national and international affairs. And the second week of that job was September 11th. I was in my early 20s. I was an executive. I was running an office. I had a staff. It just so happened that every other executive in the entire organization was out of state. And it was an international organization. So I was the only person there to field all of the calls that were coming in um, internationally and all of the questions and what do we do next. And in a lot of ways, that's been the trajectory of my career is figuring it out. Um, September 11th, I just learned that the two towers had been hit. And within three to four minutes, our entire building was flooded with NYPD and they were yelling at us to get out of the building. Um, I was trying to make sure that everybody did get out of the building. Um, they told me there was no time to get my stuff. I ran to my office. I got my stuff anyway um, and left the building and was trying to count heads and make sure people were safe and and then eventually had to make my own way up. Um, I had just moved into my very first apartment uh, the night before. Wow. And so had very little in the apartment, didn't have groceries. So trying to figure out how to get safe myself, how to take care of my own immediate needs. My brother was flying um, that morning and I didn't know if that was his plane. So trying to figure out how to keep myself safe, figuring out if my family was safe, but then also knowing I had this responsibility to 
immediately digest what was going on and to create educational human rights based programming um, because I was I, we began having groups of people from all over the country come in wanting to learn about what was happening. My experience, my adult experience of managing crisis always looked at personal, family, institutional responsibility, um, and then kind of the national and international dynamics of a crisis situation. What was the policy? Who is in power? Who doesn't have power? Who has access to safety? Who doesn't have access to safety? I've always had the responsibility of thinking through all of those components. And so very early in my career, I had to learn how to kind of funnel my own personal experience and serve the people around me. So that was the beginning of my career. I kind of went on and I took a position where I officially, my title was executive of global youth networks. I primarily worked with students between the ages of like 20 and 40 all around the world who were leaders in their own communities working on a variety of issues. And it was my job to be in partnership with them to run leadership trainings. I spent a lot of time overseas. Um, so for example, I would go to Liberia and then hold a West Africa student leaders training. We would hear about what was happening in all the different countries. We would develop kind of next step plans for each national entity, but also, you know, we would have a theme that we would be focusing in on peace building or gender and equity, um, whatever the students really wanted to focus on and look at. But then I was also a grant administrator. So I was also responsible, responsible for getting resources to people. So I, I did that for about seven years, did a lot of work in Africa and Asia, but also in Latin America, um, Europe, and then the US, primarily working with students of color in the United States. And usually when I did leadership trainings in the US, it was for young people all over the country. We didn't break up the regions too much. So I did that for seven or eight years, and primarily most of the work and the travel that I did took me to traumatized communities and communities, as you were mentioning, Anne, that were post-conflict, post-war, post-disaster. I'm wondering if you would consider our community, both Fordham and the states in general, as a traumatized community, and how would thinking about you know, the aspects of being a part of a traumatized community inform my decisions around teaching and learning? What would that look like? So yes, I would consider the U.S. and Fordham, especially right now, to be traumatized communities. Um, I think when, I was use, when I'm using the term, particularly in terms of my travel, I'm thinking about areas that had been recently traumatized or were still in a process of, as a nation state or as a community, overcoming a particular trauma. And so I'm speaking about it generalized because it took different forms. Um, in the U.S., a lot of that work was with people, of, young people of color um, and dealing with racial trauma, trauma. Also doing some work in, in poor communities who had limited resources to sometimes health care. I mean, it really just depended upon where I was. Getting back to Fordham and I think just my, my evolution as I've, after I completed that job, I got a master's in mental health counseling and began to understand trauma even more. So that's what's leading me back to your question, Steve, is that 
you know, as people, we've all encountered a variety of different traumas. So I think there are probably very few communities that are trauma-free in the world. I don't know if there's really any, because um, we all have encountered different traumas in our home lives, in our communal lives. Um, being mindful of the academic and instructional imperatives of my course, but wanting to just let the students know that we are sharing this trauma in very different ways to very different degrees together. But I want to sort of acknowledge that I'm, I'm aware of this and it's meaningful to me. So part of it is communicating that and part of it is operationalizing that value. Like what does it look like when I take that into account? So I think that one, it's really important to be aware of where you are as an instructor, as a person in terms of processing your own trauma. We're all experiencing the trauma differently. We all have different trauma histories. For some people, this may be the first time they are consciously feeling traumatized by something. For other people, this may be one of the many times they're feeling communally traumatized. But it's important for, for an individual, for an instructor to be aware of where they are in terms of processing their own trauma and allow that to create some borders around how they engage the presence of trauma in the community and in the classroom. Because you don't want to begin a conversation that you don't feel equipped to hold. Because we all come with our different trauma histories, when you open up the conversation, you have to know what you could be inviting. And so some of the ways that you asked how that could manifest if you are wanting to acknowledge trauma in the classroom and, and have space where that's recognized. I think it, it, it can manifest so many different ways. And I think I've seen, I've experienced faculty having an opening to every class that's one that's similar in effect and that gives people space to enter the room, to center themselves to remember why they clicked on that Zoom link, what they're here for, or why they've entered the classroom, depending upon how the course is being taught, to recognize what they may bring in to the room, and then to give them space to shift to what, what the business is of the day. And so that could, it could look through just speaking through. I've seen some, I've seen some people ask the question, how are people today? And giving just a minute for people to respond. I've seen people do weather checks, so you don't have to say like, oh, my day is really bad or my day is really good, but you could say, oh, it's really sunny for me. Other people could say it's been a really cloudy day. Someone could say, oh, it's been storming for weeks, right? And it's just a quick way for you to get a sense of where people are and also for them to get a sense of where they are. And then acknowledge there's a number of different weather reports that we just received. <laughs> and we're hoping that whatever the class is on, let's say it's an English class that Paul Lawrence Dunbar's poem, let's, let's shift and look at this poem and see where do we think Paul Lawrence Dunbar was when he wrote this poem, right? Like take whatever the, the, the content is of the class and help you shift from that weather check into the class material and just acknowledge that we do come with, with all kinds of experiences, all kinds of emotions and feelings. And yet we're all Somehow, for some reason, we're all here right now to study this thing. So let's dive in together. So it's helpful to end the class in a way that allows people to then leave what you've been talking about and re-enter the world. 
what's interesting about the weather report, just as an idea, right, is it doesn't require any conversation about any explicit kind of trauma, right? You, it might be a mm -hmm. breakup, it might be a death, it might be a job mm -hmm. loss, it could be anything. You could just say it's really cloudy. Then you could just go on and talk about covalent bonds and move on with your day. But you would know maybe if someone said it's been, as you said, it's been stormy for weeks, that wouldn't be a student you'd cold call on next you know, if you right. were trying right. to be a compassionate teacher. When I first started teaching high school in the late 80s, journaling was really popular. Mm. Mm. And where I taught, you know, students would write in their journals and often I would have to go to the social worker with the student's journal as a mandated reporter. If, if I do ask students to disclose, even in a, in a fairly innocuous way with a, with a weather metaphor, I need to be prepared to make that disclosures have some effect. Mm -hmm. My class should be different as a result of hearing that than mm -hmm. if I didn't hear it. I, right. I think that's sort of like the bargain I'm striking tacitly with the students, right? I'm, 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 yeah. I'm reaching out to you as one human being to another about your state. And yeah. I need to accept that responsibility then. Because I, I, I don't know, Kendra, would you think, I, I guess I would say that it's worse to, to solicit students about how they're feeling and and not do something with that information yeah. than not to ask them at all right it can be very dangerous right because when you solicit the information if you're not prepared to honor it and be open to it you all you've done is make people more vulnerable and it's probably people who are already feeling vulnerable um and you may just be confirming either what they think is going to happen to them or what their hope is not what they're hoping is not going to happen to them if they feel dismissed right or if you take it the wrong way i think mm -hmm. we think that if we open these conversations we've done the job and we've shown that we care but really i it's 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 a very serious responsibility that i think does require preparation on the part of the instructor to if you're opening that conversation to really listen to what people are saying. Sometimes if if paraphrasing is not a skill that you already have, maybe don't do it. Maybe <laughs> just allow people's words just to speak for themselves, right? And that it can be really powerful to not reframe and to allow people's words to stand as they are, to take a moment to honor everyone who shared and then to ease people into the next thing. And that's where you really need to know what your skills are and what you're, what you're really comfortable in, what you have practice in, what you've studied, what you've done, because we are all coming. And I think this is true any year. We all come with a mix of vulnerabilities. And it's especially true this year when so much of the national dialogue is about our vulnerabilities and about our, um, our traumas, uh, but yet, we don't necessarily all feel cared for in that national discussion. So whether it's about race or whether it's about COVID or whether it's just a general question, a lot of careful thought needs to happen. And really, I, I, I would recommend to any instructor to be in conversation with at least another instructor, if not your department, to get feedback 
on what, what you're thinking about, how you're thinking about holding the space. Even if you don't agree with all the feedback you get, it's good to hear other people's ideas, especially if this is a practice you're just beginning. I'm wondering about what I perceive as a tension between this humanistic approach that you're describing mm -hmm. and a much more like mechanistic approach around assessment and academic integrity and what I would consider to be a kind of a false dichotomy between yeah. what I'm going to put in a bucket I'm calling academic integrity or rigor and what mm -hmm. we've been describing or you principally as I think a more humanistic approach to teaching and learning and creating an environment in which everyone feels safe to, you know, to, to engage in their personal project of development. In many ways, you just said it. It's a false dichotomy. Like, I don't think you have to forsake rigor if you see someone as human and you recognize their humanity. Even if you do a class opening, one, it doesn't have to be every class. It could be every other class. I, I think it's important to be transparent about why you're doing it and when you're going to do it. There is something nice about the predictability of it every class. But I think you can build in with your students, especially if, if it's something you're beginning, I think it's important to do it the first several weeks of a class. You know, the first couple of weeks of the class, do it every time. But there may be a court class where it gets skipped. And it, if you've built the trust and if students already believe that this is a space where they're valued um, and their dignity is seen and experienced, they're not going to be wounded or be harmed by the lack of that opening that one class. I do think transparency of is really important. In a lot of ways, what I saw with, with the faculty who took this more humanistic approach is they took advantage of those five minutes, right? And just said, as people were coming in, just spoke to them, said something to them, shared something. And then it would take like two minutes. It, does, it doesn't have to be a 20 minute class discussion about like weather check. You don't have to have everybody check in with their weather check every time, right? You could open it up to who's gonna share where they're at today, um, depending upon the class size. If it's a smaller class, maybe everybody does it every class. But if it's, you know, 30 or 40 or more people in the class, maybe you just have a couple of minutes at the beginning of the class where people do this check-in. So, I think that it's easy to look at why not to do something. And I think it's, it, it's as important to spend time thinking about, well, what could be the benefits? And if I can prepare people to participate, to engage, to learn more in this next hour, hour and a half class by doing a two minute check-in, then I may be enhancing the rigor, enhancing the impact of the course with these students. I think some of it's also the goal, what your goal is in terms of how you assess your impact as a faculty member in terms of teaching the material and getting it across. What are some good ways that professors can bring student expertise, student knowledge into the room that don't kind of put people on the spot and, and force them to kind of speak for their group? One tactic is having the same invitation for the whole class um, and not inviting individual members of a class to chime in on one issue, but having one provocation to the students in the class to share their expertise 
and again, then treat it as such. I think, I think there's a lot in the follow through. There's a lot in the provocation, but there's a lot in the follow through too, in terms of treating it as expertise. And if sometimes you do need to, sometimes faculty may be in the situation where they need to get more clarity on something that a student said. Um, they need to, they need to help the student think through what was said. And I think you just have to, to be mindful of when you're giving open invitations for people to just share their experience or their knowledge. Um, and when you are leading the class into a, an answer, right? I think they're different things because if you're asking the class to share their expertise to get to an answer, that's, you have to be really careful in that. But if you're just acknowledging that everyone has expertise and you're asking people to share it, um, sometimes you have to ask some follow-up questions, again, to get clarity and to make sure that what the student is saying, what they are intending to say, that the message is getting out there. But if there's a particular answer that you're looking for, then maybe don't root that in the experiential wisdom or expertise that students have just innately um, because it's if there's only one answer then it's not just uh it's not based in experiential expertise right because we all have different experiences can you tell us about a teacher that you continue to think about as a mentor a model <laughs> to come to mind okay um the first the first one that comes to mind is my third grade teacher and i had had some difficult teacher relationships in early elementary school but when I moved into second grade, I had the same teacher for second and third grade, and she was really wonderful. And I think they kept me in that class on purpose because of what had happened the year before. Oh. And she was just so kind and accessible and dealt with me as a person and treated me like a person. And even in second and third grade, I knew immediately the difference. And I knew immediately that I was safe in that classroom and I had not been safe before. You know, if I messed up on something, she, if I like, I, meaning I gave the wrong answer to a question, um, I was never made to feel that I was bad. And she would give us opportunities to partner with each other and to like create shared knowledge between me and my, like myself and another classmate and then to present things together. She just, she ran the class in a way that allowed us to all be individuals, but still learn as a group. And it makes an impact. I think another professor that I think of, oh, I just thought of another one. Um, but the first one I was thinking about was in grad school. Um, and she often took, as Steve would call, a more humanistic approach to classes, which thought fit with the classes she taught. And she would oftentimes bring issues of race into the class. And she was a white woman who had done a lot of studying in the area, but it certainly wasn't her expertise per se, but she was very authentic into who she was and set up the space where we could really bring the fullness of who we were and respected the class enough to be, and this was a graduate class too, so, but respected, set the tone of respect and respected the class enough to allow us to handle some of the issues that came up the level of respect in the class was so high because she, we all knew that she saw us or we all felt seen in some way by her. And so the standard was that we had to see each other too. 
And so we didn't just jump all over each other, even when we were feeling triggered. And sometimes we'd have to pause a moment, right? But it was just a really high level of, of respect and dignity. She talked a lot about cultural humility and brought that theory, that way of being into the class um, and admitted that she was learning too and would call on different ones of us when we had kind of more background in an area to speak and would kind of give us that space. Um, so she just, she just handled it really beautifully. The, hu the humanistic approach was really valued. I think it only amplified the learning that I was able to do. Is there anything you didn't get a chance to talk about that you wanted to make sure you got to say, Kendra? I think for me in this work, the recognition of everybody's full humanity and dignity and creating space and place for possibility and access is, is really what's important to me. And so almost no matter what context of, I'm in, I'm working in, um, whether it's what department I'm working with at Fordham or if I'm looking at community relationships with Fordham, that guides me through, that helps me know what my role is in my work at Fordham. Twice Over Podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, with new episodes appearing twice each week. For host and guest bios and show notes, please visit our website, twiceoverpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twiceover1 or email us at twiceoverpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.